Welcome, everyone, to Season 16 of the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Haley Barton, and as we begin this season, I am feeling a little bit like a mother bear who is very protective of those that we minister to, our pastors and leaders who are navigating some of the most challenging and anxiety-producing days of our lives and vocations. Everyone is buzzing about the new Barna research that indicates that 29% of Protestant pastors have given serious consideration to quitting full-time ministry over the last year. Last summer, the World Council of Churches found that a quarter of clergy that they surveyed were considering retiring or leaving the pastorate due to stresses of COVID. In a follow-up survey, it had grown to about a third of pastors who were considering other options or thinking about leaving their post. And so at this moment, I am feeling like a mother bear and wondering what can we do for the people that we love, our pastors and our leaders. Everything in me right now is on high alert, wondering what can be offered that would do more than just sustain us, but also strengthen our ability to lead well during these days. Those of you who know me well know that I am a tireless champion for spiritual practices that will sustain us for the long haul. Solitude, silence, retreat, Sabbath. But right now, I'm convinced that we also need to integrate some psychological understanding, that we need uh, another important piece that will help us to manage our own and other people's anxieties through these uniquely anxiety-producing days. And that psychological piece, I believe, is systems theory as it relates to life in congregations and communities. In its original iteration from Dr. Murray Bowen, it would be called family systems theory, but you can also broaden it out to just be systems theory in general, because the idea is that all systems function in some predictable ways, whether it's uh, systems in nature or whether it's human systems or churches or congregations, really anything that comes together to function together becomes a system. And I am longing to see those of us who are called to leadership in these days not just survive, but actually thrive. And I am longing to see us as leaders lead in such a way that those we lead get to thrive as well. And so that the best of who we all are right now can be brought to the challenges of this moment. And so I have come to believe that this is a moment when family systems theory or systems theory, however you want to talk about it, when this way of looking at things is uniquely helpful. So when I came across Steve Cuss's book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, I read it with delight. I read it voraciously, knowing that this work would benefit us all at this time. And so Steve and I have already recorded seven episodes for this season. And as you might imagine, he and I jumped into the deep end of the pool pretty fast because both he and I have been studying systems theory for a very long time. So we started splashing around pretty vigorously from the get-go. So I realized as I stepped back from recording those seven episodes that we really needed an, an introductory episode that would give us some basic swimming lessons in systems theory so that we could all jump into the deep end of the pool together when Steve and I get into our conversations. So at the beginning here, I want to let you know that I'm not an expert, but when I pulled out my files to prepare for this season, I realized that I have been studying and thinking about and applying systems theory since 2006. So I don't consider myself to be an expert, but I have worked with these ideas for a very long time. And I'm just going to do my very best to give us an introduction to systems theory so that when Steve and I get into our conversations, it, means, it makes even more sense to all of you who are listening. 
So here we go. Family systems theory was first developed by psychiatrist Dr. Murray Bowen, who based his ideas on a very basic concept, and that is that the family is an emotional unit, which means that any change in the emotional functioning of one family member would be predictably and automatically compensated for by changes in the emotional functioning of other family members. I'm going to say that again because it's such a deep thought, but it's so deeply true. Listen to it again. He based his theory on a very basic concept that the family is an emotional unit, which means that any change in the emotional functioning of one family member would be predictably and automatically compensated for by changes in the emotional functioning of other family members. So there are two really important implications from that idea. First of all, that the emotional functioning of every member of a family plays a part in the occurrence of medical, psychological, and social illness in one family member, which if you really think about that, you'll realize that that is a very different way of thinking because oftentimes if someone in the family is struggling in one of those ways, the focus is on that individual versus uh, focusing on what's happening in the whole entire system and how it produced what's happening in this one person's life. So that's really important that the emotional functioning of every member plays a part in the occurrence of medical, psychological, or social illness in one family member. And then secondly, the second implication of this way of looking at life together is that then treatment does not need to be directed at the symptomatic person in the system, but should actually be directed to the system as a whole. Wow, that just turns our way of looking at things upside down, I think, because typically when there's someone in a family who's struggling, we want to get them counseling and we want to take care of them and get them whatever they need rather than looking at the system as a whole that might have produced some of the symptoms that are being experienced. So those are two very important ideas as we enter into this conversation because after Murray Bowen developed his family systems theory, then Ed Friedman, who was a Jewish rabbi, actually took that teaching and began to apply it to synagogues and congregations. And now we understand that systems theory applies to our life together in communities as they gather, particularly churches and synagogues, And you don't really know what's happening in a system unless you are willing to look at the system versus just looking at individuals who seem to be problematic. So Bowen goes on in his theory to say that the human condition is characterized by a basic struggle, and that is the struggle for balance between two basic urges, and that is the drive towards being an individual and the drive towards being together. So he would identify these as the individual individuality force and the togetherness force, which sets up a very natural tension for all of us, anxiety, if you will, um, that we as humans are always managing, and that is our need and desire, and it's a very healthy drive to be differentiated, to be our own person, to be governed by our own principles and guidelines and sense of destiny while at the same time we're also created to be together in this world. And so we have strong desires to be together with others in intimate ways as well. And that we are all always managing that anxiety in any system that we are a part of. That is the anxiety that moves throughout a system. Um, So there are eight concepts 
in Bowen theory. And I want to move through these. Some of you who are listening know these and you've studied them. And in many seminary situations now, systems theory is something that's taught because it's understood that that when communities gather together, that all of these dynamics are at work. And that if you don't understand these basic concepts or these basic dynamics, you don't really understand what's going on. The other thing that's really important to understand about anxiety in systems is that people come in with their whatever anxiety they have that's unresolved from their family of origin. And so they come into churches and synagogues and other kinds of communities trying to actually work out what it is that's unresolved from their family of origin. And so my suggestion is that we never just jump to trying to understand and deal with systems in the communities that we're a part of until we as individuals have done our own work around our family of origin and what our place was in that system and what the anxieties were and how those anxieties got dealt with within our family of origin. Uh, A lot of people would prefer not to have to do that. They would like to say, oh, can I just become a better leader without dealing with my family of origin stuff? Because it's painful. I mean, everybody has pain in their family of origin. And most of us would like to believe that we're grown up now. We've put all that in the past. We don't have to deal with it. And that is just wrong. It doesn't work that way. And in fact, any work that we do on our family of origin is going to improve our functioning in any other community that we're a part of. Hallelujah. I find that to be incredibly hopeful that if we will do our work in our family of origins, we will bring a healthier, person into the communities that we're a part of. And if we're leaders, we're going to bring a healthier presence into our leadership so that we can be a non-anxious presence or a calm presence. I think Steve would say that um, a calm presence is maybe more accurate because we're all always dealing with anxiety, but it's whether or not we can bring calm even in the midst of our own anxiety. So I don't care which phrase you use, non-anxious presence or calm presence, but the effect of all of this on our leadership is that once we pay attention to how we've managed anxiety and we are able to notice our own anxiety and other people's anxiety and diagnose and diffuse anxiety, that we will be much more effective leaders. But Bowen theory or systems theory is a very, very different way of looking at life together. And so I remember when early on in my own study and training, it was pointed out that if that it might take several years to be able to shift our thinking to think in Bowen system ways. And so let's not try to be overachievers here. You're not going to get this by listening to one little podcast from me. It'll take more than this, but we're going to be recommending resources. We'll have resources in our show notes so that you can continue your work, even as you listen to the little bits that we're going to be able to offer you in this podcast season. All right, so let's jump into the eight concepts of Bowen theory. And um, actually, I'm going to give you nine concepts because the ninth concept was the one that might be most interesting to some of us. And that was Bowen's idea about spirituality and the fact that there really is a supernatural phenomenon at work. And we can lean into the presence of the divine or the spiritual, but he died before he was able to fully develop the ninth concept. So in some ways, I feel like some of us who are working with systems theory and spiritual practices, that we are actually developing, in some ways, that ninth concept that Bowen was not able to develop before his death. So let's talk about the eight concepts that are most well-developed in systems theory. First of all, there is the concept of differentiation of self. 
And Bowen and those who write about Bowen would say that differentiation of self is the single most important idea in systems theory, um, and that that is the most important thing for us to understand that individuals vary in their ability to adapt and to cope to the, with the demands of life and to reach their goals. And that is by definition what differentiation is. This differentiation of self, the way Bowen identified it, um, he offered it to us on a scale where you can place people on a spectrum according to the degree of fusion or differentiation they experience between themselves and others in their emotional and intellectual functioning. So it's a spectrum. Nobody's ever fully differentiated. We're all on a spectrum. And by the way, we might be more differentiated in some settings than in other settings. Or we might feel like we've accomplished some differentiation um, where, you know, we can think about ourselves and our own guiding values and principles and define a self and take a stand when we're functioning maybe in our own work or with our own friendships. But then we go back into our families and we find ourselves undifferentiated again. We find ourselves going backwards into that undifferentiated globiness is what uh, Bowen might call it. So a well-differentiated person's intellect can function separately from the emotional system. So it means that you can be in the system, you can be there, you can be fully present, you can be connected, but you're able to still function with your own intellect and you're able to think your own thoughts, you're able to function according to your own values and principles. And in fact, differentiation by definition is the ability to define a self while staying connected, which is so important because some people cut off from their families and think that they're differentiated, but they're not. Cutting off from our families, cutting off from our important ones is a form of reactivity. It's a way of managing anxiety. It is not differentiation. Differentiation by definition is the ability to differentiate a self, to be a self while staying connected in your most important relationships. So a better differentiated person, not perfectly, none of us are going to be perfect on this side of heaven, but a better differentiated person has a greater capacity to be a self while staying in meaningful contact with others. They are operating on the basis of clear, inner determined principles while staying in community with those who are significant to them. So this is differentiation and part of what we'll get to when we talk about anxiety is that when you're non-differentiated, it means that you give into the, in, the anxiety of the group and you function in order to placate the group versus being able to continue to function as a fully defined self. So that's the first concept is differentiation of self. The second concept is triangles. And this is a three-person configuration, which is the basic building block of any emotional system. A two-person relationship can often feel a little bit wobbly, and so oftentimes when there's some wobbliness in a two-person system, then they might triangle in a third person to try to help them solve their issues. The idea of triangles is a neutral idea, by the way. We all function in triangles. We're always, always functioning in triangles. Triangulating or triangling is the part that is dysfunctional, and that is when we try to bring someone else in to help us solve a problem with a person with whom we are in direct relationship, and that becomes a very negative thing. And of course, that corresponds to the Christian idea of going directly to someone when you have an issue or a problem with them. The first instruction that we get in Matthew 
you 18 is that if someone offends you or you become aware that you've hurt someone else, you go to them directly. You don't talk about it with somebody else, but you go straight to them. You deal with it in that in that relationship. When people lack confidence that they can do that, that is often when they will triangle, when they will actually literally try to pull a third person in to help them deal with their own anxiety. So when anxiety increases, a two-person system will almost always involve a third person unless we are thinking systems like this and realize that that's not always helpful. So the idea of triangles and being able to see triangles, that's the other thing about systems theory is that we're attempting to see systems, we're attempting to see process versus seeing emotional content or versus seeing content, I should say. And so as we increase our capacity to see systems and to see the emotional process that's taking place, the emotional process actually becomes more significant than even the content itself because anxiety is always moving around and moving around in systems. And as it increases, that's when we try to triangle someone else in to try to help us solve our problems because we lack confidence that we can take care of it ourselves. So uh, we'll watch triangles as we go as one of the ways that we manage our anxieties. The third concept is the nuclear family emotional process. And this describes the patterns of emotional functioning in a single generation. As we are managing the togetherness force, uh, fusion within the family is played out in many different ways. It can, we, and it's really all about managing our anxiety within the system and this anxiety around togetherness forces versus individualized forces. But we might use emotional distance. We might experience marital conflict. There might be dysfunction in one spouse or the other. Or uh, we might project our problems onto our children. And that's, that's one of the basic triangles that we experience in a family is the two parents with one of the children. And we try to work it out in that way. So the fourth concept is the family projection process. And again, the emphasis on the word process shows that we're trying to learn how to observe the process of what's happening in the system versus the, the actual content. And it's not like we don't pay attention to the content at all, but what is actually more important is the emotional process that's happening within the family unit. So the family projection process is the process through which parents, when they are undifferentiated, can impair one or more children by the way they function in the father-mother-child triangle. And oftentimes there is in a family an identified patient or some, one child that seems to struggle more than the others. And oftentimes that is because there's been more focus by the mother and the father on that child who is struggling. And oftentimes that the very struggle that they go through is because they became the focus of the mother of the father-mother um, relationship. Almost every family has one child who is more triangled than the others um, and who, who really in the family met an emotional need then in that way. And so to be able to even observe that in a family, and again, family systems theory is powerful because it removes this need to place blame on an individual, which for many of us as Christians is quite unusual. We're so used to placing blame on individuals. Family systems theory is a whole new way of looking at things. And rather than placing blame on an individual then, or an identified patient, if you will, we're actually willing to look at the system and look at the way the system has produced the situation versus blaming 
the individual who seems to be more challenged or a little bit more broken within the system. So family projection process and the ability and the willingness to be able to see how the system has produced the anxiety around one of the children versus looking at the system and seeing that the system produced it. Now, this takes us to, to the next concept, which I think is so incredibly important, very related to number four, and that is the multi-generational transmission process. So this is really interesting because in the third concept, the nuclear family emotional process, it talked about emotional functioning in a single generation. But in the fifth concept, we're actually talking now about multi-generational transmission process. And this is the idea that the family projection process, in other words, the way the family deals with anxiety, actually continues through multiple generations and that it can be identified. And if you do the work to look back at multiple generations, you can actually see the patterns of how anxiety was dealt with throughout multiple generations. So if through successive generations we follow the line of children who emerged, we will be able to see who was the most impaired which that, would have, that child would have been the one who had the focus of everyone's anxiety and particularly the parents' anxieties. We can see lower and lower, lower levels of differentiation as we look back at multiple generations. We can see remarkable consistency in the way systems functioned. And that's a beautiful thing in and of itself because now rather than blaming ourselves and seeing ourselves as being uniquely flawed, we can see that actually the way we're functioning is remarkably consistent with the way generations have functioned in the past and that we're really just a product of that. And the good news in that is that once we become aware, then we have the opportunity, the choice to actually change the way we function and to become more differentiated and to become more choiceful around how we handle anxiety in our own family system. So this multi-generational transmission process, in some ways, you know, I would think that that's one of the most important aspects of Bowen theory as well, because now we're not just blaming it on the dysfunction of one generation. We're looking back, we're seeing these patterns, and now we realize that we have a choice to do something different in our own generation, which I find tremendously hopeful. The sixth concept of Bowen theory is an interesting one. It is about sibling position. And, you know, we've all, you know, learned something about sibling position as, as, you know, we've paid attention to these things in our own families. And especially if we're parents, and I would say actually now as a grandparent, I actually see sibling position a whole lot more clearly than I was able to see it when I was a parent. Now I, I see it everywhere. And some would say, and Bowen Theory would say, that sibling position is the most determinative characteristic of an individual's personality than anything else, including how they were parented, including their relationship with their, their parent, that sibling position is more determinative about your uh, personality type than anything else. And if you think about it, uh, you know your siblings way longer and more consistently than you know anyone else. In most family situations, parents will die and the sibling relationships will go on. So your siblings are the ones that you knew from the very beginning. They've been with you the longest and they will be with you the longest even after your parents pass from the scene. And so important personality characteristics fit with sibling position. And that's a very determinative factor in terms of one's personality.
And so in a book that I'm going to recommend really strongly to you, Extraordinary Relationships, A New Way of Thinking About Human Interactions by Roberta Gilbert, there's a whole section in the back, there's a whole appendix in the back that talks about sibling position and how that forms our personalities. And, you know, again, what's so lovely about this is that there's something objective about it. The characteristics that I have because I'm the oldest in my family and the oldest girl, rather than, you know, feeling badly about those or ashamed of those, I can just see that that's what my sibling position produced and in a very, very, very predictable way. And that I will function as the very responsible oldest daughter in any situation that I'm in, even when I'm not in my family. I will always be what that sibling position produced in me. Now, you know, as time goes by and as I want to mitigate that some as part of my transforming transformational journey, I can definitely do that. I can pull back. I can, you know, really work in a transforming way around what my sibling position produced in me. But I'll always be what I am um, in that way. I'll always be the oldest daughter of a pastor. And in whatever situation I'm in, that's the personality type I'm going to be bringing. And so an interesting thing to do in staff communities and things like that could be to know one another's sibling position and to understand that that really affects everything about how we function, even when we're not within our own families. Now, of course, when we go back into our own families, those characteristics will probably rise up and be as strong as they as they are in any situation. But we're always who we are based on our, our sibling position. So the seventh concept of Bowen theory is emotional cutoff. And this is a very interesting one because, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes we can think of differentiation as... Uh, being able to emotionally cut off. But these two things are very different. And Bowen theory identifies this, I think, more effectively than any theory I've ever seen. Um, Differentiation is the ability to remain a self while staying connected. Emotional cutoff is different than that in that it is a way of managing our anxiety by separating, running away, or denying the importance of the parental family. The more a nuclear family maintains viable emotional contact with past generations, the more orderly and asymptomatic the life process unfolds in future generations, our ability to stay connected. So emotional cutoff is is an unhealthy way of managing the anxiety that comes from not being differentiated. It's an unhealthy way of navigating and managing our anxiety around togetherness and individuation. So emotional cutoff, while it might feel like differentiation, is definitely not differentiation because it's just a way of managing anxiety. Differentiation, as we've said, is the ability to stay connected while continuing to define a self, which is such an important nuance for us to understand as we enter into this season. And then finally, the eighth characteristic or the eighth concept of Bowen theory is societal regression or being able to see societal emotional process. So the emotional problems in society are always going to be very similar to emotional problems in the family. And this goes back to the statement that I made earlier on, that people who have not solved their problems and their dysfunctions within their family of origin, they are going to take that lack of resolution 
out into the society and try to work it out there in an under in an unhealthy way. So it sounds counterintuitive, but even being willing to work with the emotional problems within our family and the emotional processes within our families will make us healthier people in society and the society will improve the more that and the societies or communities will improve the more we're willing to do this work. Society responds to increasing chronic anxiety with emotionally determined decisions. Now, I know I'm using really big words, so let me say that again. Society responds to increasing chronic anxiety with emotionally determined decisions to alleviate the anxiety of the moment. And all that means is that each one of us is going to bring the patterns that we utilized in our family of origin to deal with anxiety, to ameliorate anxiety. We are going to bring what we learned there into society, into every other community that we're a part of. And one of the things that I say to pastors and leaders in our communities is that if you do not understand systems theory as a pastor or a leader, you will not ever really know what's going on because everyone is coming into the communities that they're a part of trying to still resolve what is unresolved within them from their family of origin. And if they have not been invited yet into dealing with their issues from family of origin, they're just going to try to be working it out in the community that they're a part of. And I do believe this is why so many churches fall apart in the midst of anxiety and can't find their way through divisiveness and things like that is because the people who are participating in those communities are actually functioning at a very low level. They're functioning at the level at which they function in their family of origin if they have not taken time to pay attention to that. And we'll all just keep responding the way we always did in our family of origin in the other communities we're a part of until we do this work. So in talking about societal regression, we're actually talking about increasing chronic anxiety in society where individuals who have not worked on themselves and their families of origin are now just bringing the same symptoms of dysfunction into the other communities that they're a part of and efforts to relieve the symptoms versus looking at these family of origin sources is only going to increase the problem and keep the cycle repeating. Some of you listening right now, you understand that what we are experiencing in our culture and in our society right now has to do with this very thing that we're talking about here. The lack of healing and wholeness and intentionality uh, that we've had around working with families of origin, and so now we're just trying to work it out in these other situations that we're in. And so one of the things that these eight concepts give us the ability to do is to step back, to look and to see what's really going on from a process standpoint, and then to choose rather than just react, to choose our better selves, to choose our better differentiated selves, to choose a principled response versus an emotionally reactive response. And I find this to be extraordinarily hopeful for where we are um, in churches and communities and in our society. Um, It's not that I have a great deal of belief that everyone's going to be willing to do this work, but the hope is that if even a few of us were willing to do this work, and to work at our transformation at this level, to see systems theory as a way of opening to the transforming work of God as just another way of opening, then I have a lot of hope that people who are doing that work can find a way to stay together and to move through divisiveness, to continue to be differentiated while also staying connected with their communities. 
I've also mentioned this ninth concept that Murray Bowen did not have a chance to fully develop, to develop, and that was distinction, the distinction between science and spirituality, but to see spirituality as a support and a resource for this work. Bowen also identified the fact that beliefs are really important and that beliefs have a function and that beliefs can be very subjective, even though we might feel we're being objective. And when we get into the season with Steve, we're going to actually talk about false beliefs and how false beliefs actually produce false actions or actions that are non-productive and ineffective in our settings. And that the ability to surface false beliefs also increases our capacity to choose truer beliefs and then to function out of more truth than the false beliefs that are embedded in many of our personalities based on our families of origin. And so it is by God's grace that any of these things surface for us. Um, And it is by God's grace that we are given the opportunity to be invited into looking at our families of origin, to looking at the tools that are contained within this way of looking at the world, and to see these not just as mere psychology or psychiatry, but also to see these as a spiritual practice, a way of opening to greater truth that God wants to reveal to us. So maybe in some sort of summary, Family systems theory assumes the existence of these two life forces, individuality, which is the need to be a separate person, and togetherness, that's a need to remain emotionally connected with others. Both of those are built into us by God at creation. And then differentiation is the process by which individuality and togetherness are managed. And then um, many of these other things that we've talked about are actually ways of managing our anxiety around these two basic life forces. So friends, we are swimming in the deep end of the pool. I hope you can feel it. And I hope that going over these basic ideas and concepts gives you the ability to swim in the deep end of the pool with Steve Cuss and I as we move through a whole season on managing leadership anxiety. And as we conclude this episode, I want to remind our listeners of a basic concept that we believe in here in the Transforming Center, and that is that the best thing you bring to leadership is your own transforming self. The reason that statement is true is because of systems theory. Because the idea is that when one person in a system changes and changes for the better, the whole system will change. The whole system will automatically have to adjust to this person who is changing, which means that if you as a leader start changing and becoming healthier and more differentiated while staying connected, if you begin to bring the calm presence, um, if you begin to notice your own anxiety and other people's anxiety, and you adapt some tools that help you to diffuse that anxiety, your very presence will start to transform the communities that you are a part of. And that is why we are bringing this season right now is because there has never been more anxiety in our churches and in our communities and in our world. And this is the moment, I think, for some of us as leaders to double down to understand what it means to be a transforming leader, the impact that it could have on our world right now and on our churches right now. And I'm actually even hoping that this understanding will keep some of us as leaders and pastors from throwing in the towel, that some of us will begin to get in touch with the way we're managing anxiety and will realize that the way we're managing anxiety is actually what's pushing us to want to quit. And maybe if we can understand this better, we will find good ways to stay faithful to God's call upon our lives for the long haul because we'll learn different ways to navigate 
and to manage our own anxiety and others. I could not be more excited about this season. Um, I think it is the right time. I think it's a Kairos moment. And I pray that you will do the work with us, that you'll go with us, you'll get into that deep end of the pool, you'll swim with us, you'll learn things, and that we will all become better leaders for it, and the kingdom of God will move forward. Thanks so much for listening today, friends. I hope that you are already finding yourself to be encouraged during these challenging days, that God has resources for us, God has ways of leading us forward if we can just stay open. I also want to mention that here in the Transforming Center, we have two identical dates in the fall for an event that we call the Pursuing God's Will Together Retreat. And this retreat is all about helping leadership groups discern and do the will of God together. It's about helping them to move beyond just strategic thinking and planning to a place where we listen for the voice of God in our own lives and in our lives as leadership groups so that we can do God's will together as leaders. And so if this is a desire that's on your heart, if you have questions about how God is leading you forward as a community, then this two and a half day retreat will give your leadership group a chance to come away, to listen to God and to each other, and to discern God's way forward for you. You can find information about this in our show notes or by going to our website. Oh.